0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter 4, 12-19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... while doing good this is the word of the lord praise be to christ thanks wayne
0: well good morning uh my name is stacy croft if i haven't met you uh, i'm the pastor here at christ for music row and um it's good to see everybody and um i always love it when wayne leads us in worship um his heart is so full and um i'm almost like just stay up here man you can preach it just go ahead and take sermon Um, um i always enjoy it thank you wayne for leading us Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the name um, Victor Emil Frankl. It's a a, a profound name in the study of what's called logotherapy. Um, He actually studied, he was a part of the Holocaust, he was a survivor, and actually studied and did a lot of work regarding uh, what the Holocaust did to actual, um, both those who passed away and those who actually survived. A lot of what he discusses about, um, in short, if you want to just condense it, is how do you have hope? as someone who's in such deep atrocities. Uh, I was able to go to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. I don't know if you've ever really studied the Holocaust before uh, or been to some something like that. Um, the Holocaust really is uh, where every single horrible thing happens to you all at once, and everything good that you have is taken away. It is such a cauldron of awful atrocity, and yet to hear testimonies and to hear these things, and to, if you ever read Frankel's work, um, there's some condensed versions of it. It's really fascinating, and just to give a taste of what he talks about in terms of that, he, he recognized that there are really kind of four uh, groups that really handled this survival um, of the Holocaust, the first was um, those who had kind of a hope in themselves. They were a group that really, there was no real reality outside of self. Um, but what he noticed was those who didn't have a, a hope or a reality outside of self, they really were willing to betray others to preserve themselves. That if hope was there, it was up to them to secure it and keep it and ho- hold on to it. And many of them uh, found themselves isolated and alone. The second group was a group called Uh, that had hope in circumstances. Uh, Their security was, if things just get better, I'm going to feel better. If things just go better, I'm going to do better. But oftentimes, as that was the case, it didn't happen. And even if they survived, they still dealt with what we know. Even many of you in this room may have dealt with, in certain instances, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, where... The circumstances may be even great, and you are still in this prison of those walls. The third group really was um, a group that had hope and restoration, which sounds great. If I just make it to the end, if I can just just put my shoulder down and make it to the end, that'd be great, but life wasn't always sweeter or better at the end. What is the end is always the question, existential question. That's where. Frankel was trying to go. He said, but the, the, the last group was a small group, but it was a group that really had the most hope, the most joy of all. And they were the group that put their hope, it said, where the Nazis couldn't touch it. In a place where they said, there's someone else bigger than me, looking down on me and loving me. That there's someone bigger, someone who cared more with love that couldn't be taken away. You know, we, we, we've been looking at Peter's letter. We're almost at the end of it. Um, we actually have a couple uh, this end of this chapter in the next week, and, and we'll land the plane on Peter's letter. And if there's a theme that runs through Peter's letter, it's on suffering. You've probably heard me mention it. It's been kind of farmed in as we go. This is actually the third time that Peter addresses it head on in terms of suf- how to endure suffering. And what Peter's constantly doing, is as a reminder, Peter, this is the apostle, the disciple Peter, who wrote letters to Christians in Rome, as is Rome, uh, Italy, the one that is the big kind of New York, London, major hub of the world at that time. How do you as a Christian make it? And how do you endure? How do you live? And if you've noticed throughout, as you've seen his letter, and you'll see even today, he takes who you are as a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? In fact, this is the first time we see the word Christian used, and we'll talk about that. But what does that connect to us living out being a Christian? And over and over, Peter comes back to suffering. He comes back to the place of like, what do we do in a world that is filled with difficulty, trial, sin, persecution, and pain, and also follow a God who says, I'm removing all of that. I came to die for that so that you can live differently. And here's where the crux of it is. Here's the question we're going to answer. How do you suffer well? How do you and I suffer well? And that's what Peter wants us to know. Because regardless, even if you're here this morning, you'd say, I'm learning what it means to be a Christian, or or maybe you're back in church after being out for a while, or, or one of those, maybe you're in a place of deep suffering right now, or maybe you have been, or maybe you will be. The question will be there, how do you suffer well? What's the purpose? What's the point of it? So Peter says this, I think, in two ways. He really, he kind of draws it out. One is our reactions to suffering. How do we react to it? What's your response? And the second one is, how do you rejoice in suffering? What does it really mean to have joy in the midst of such horrible, difficult things? So our reactions and rejoicing in suffering. I love how he begins here in verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. <laughs> I think the first reaction is right there. It's the surprise. The, whoa. Why is this happening to me? <laughs> you know what I love about the Bible, and I just have to acknowledge it right out the gate. It, it, it's not distant from our reactions today. The, the reactions that, Peter's writing to you are ones that he's hearing, the ones that he's encountered. These are real people encountering real things. The Bible isn't this whimsical thing that try and pull you out of the reality. It actually is to push you back into it. And isn't that the thing when we encounter su- suffering, this surprise, this why? What? <laughs> especially if we're following Jesus. Isn't it supposed to be different? Like, this this is weird. This shouldn't be happening to me. But it's not always trying to make sense of tragedy. It's looking through it. It's looking to him. You know one of the best books in the Bible that talks about suffering is Job. It's an Old Testament book. It's actually the oldest book written in the entire Bible. And it's written about suffering. It's written about a servant uh, meaning just a follower of God named Job who loses everything at the very beginning. And after he does, he has these friends that come to him, and, and they're friends for sure, and they begin to try and help him make sense. Why are you suffering? Because he's just kind of sitting there. He's, he's, he's dumbfounded. And some of his friends begin to say, okay, let's try and figure this out for you. What have you done wrong? lately? Like, what, what have you messed up on? He's like, ah, and he keeps, starts coming in with, you know, whatever it is. I don't know. What have I messed up? And they start telling him, well, maybe you've done this. Well, maybe you messed up in this. Maybe your relationship with God isn't as good as you think it is. And they start giving him all sorts of answers. And so as great friends are <laughs> trying to help him out, they're trying to fix him. And they're trying to put the words on it. And guess what? God comes in later and says, you're not being good friends at all. Suffering isn't just because you did something wrong, you messed it up. In fact, Peter delineates the difference between suffering as a Christian and other suffering, as Wayne read for us perfectly. As it says in verse 15, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even a meddler. What he's drawing out there is the fact that there is suffering for consequences. Yes, that's normal in everyday life. But what about suffering that you can't attach to anything? And yet often we want to measure our suffering as something punitive, as if we have done something wrong. But Peter's wanting us to see it's not supposed to be punitive, but a pattern of life. Suffering is a part woven in and sometimes consumes portions and seasons of our life, whereby it shows us it's a pattern. It's not not something necessarily you've done wrong. Yes, there is consequence for that. But this world is riddled with suffering and sin and difficulty. And sometimes some of us are going through it harder than others. Some of us are going through it longer in periods than others. But how do we make sense of it together? This is why suffering well is such a big deal. There are so many articles about how we as Westerners don't suffer well. There are so many articles regarding how we live in such a place of, of suffering shows us, oh man, I just want ease in my life, and that many, especially students, as I studied and, and realized just from spending time, continue to come through university settings and into our world. And many of you feel that here going, God, why is life so hard? Because we haven't learned to suffer well. We've tried to avoid it or fix it or not engage it. Rather, and we see it as a disturbance of what should be rather than actually living in it as a pattern of what's a part of life, as growth. You know why he actually begins by saying, surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you as something strange? Why use the words fiery ordeal? Are they like having a fire? No. What he's using is to say, God is testing you. He's drawing out the impurities, He's using language to say the fiery ordeal is to say that suffering from God's hand is not one that is useless or worthless. It's to actually make you different. It's to make you better, more beautiful in him. It's to draw you out. And we might not always understand it. In fact, many times we don't. (laughs) Uh, I think it was Tim Keller or someone, uh, a great theologian along the way that has said that suffering, if we get even a a taste, a a small percentage of the reason of why we would suffer, we are blessed to know that, to have even a, a, a handle of the understanding. But the point is he's always for us, not against us. The fiery ordeal is to draw us out, not push us in. It's his great wisdom to heal us, to actually make us more and more of who we are to be because he loves us and even likes us more in it. I remember when Jake was really little, my son, who's now 13. He was, uh, man, one, two years old. And uh, he had all these issues with ear infections. It's a very common thing. So we had to take him in to get tubes done in his ears. And, and that's a, a common procedure, if you're unfamiliar, where they put, and maybe ha- all of us have had these at one point, where they put small tubes in your ears surrounding to help the, the fluid drain more easily so you can hear because it was actually affecting his speech uh, because it sounded, if you have too much fluid in there, it's not able to get out. It actually sounds often like you're underwater. And so it really impacts the way we speak. And so we—I remember taking him to um, the surgeon. Megan and I were there, um, and and the doctor comes out to get him, and you know we're all thinking, "Oh, well, we'll go back with him." He goes, "No, no, no, I'll take him." Well, I hand Jake to him, and all of a sudden, um, he realizes he's being taken from us, and they're the, the you know those doors that kind of you know it's like a scene of a show or something. He turns on his back and he starts clawing on this doctor's back. And he's like, he has to like carry him through the <laughs> doors like that. And we're like, oh. And I remember sitting down thinking, oh my word. And, and it's such a quick procedure. I had no idea how long it'd be. It was like literally, I think I sent like a text and he was done. But the whole point was interesting. Jake thought what we were doing is sending him to suffering, sending him into something he, would just, oh, it was horrible, isolation. He had no idea who'd be put to sleep, get these things put in his ears. And yet what we knew on our side of that was that for his sake, for his benefit, for his growth, for his actually development, he had to go through this. It was something to purify, to make him be able to even hear because he was having to go through so much. God's wisdom on his side is so hard. And one day, yes, Lord will show us that. And it's not a, oh, we just don't know and he's wise. It's actually his loving care to put us not into harm's way, but to hold us as he does. As we go through a world that is being transformed by that. Verse 14 says this, not just after the surprise and something strange, but it says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ. (laughs) You know, if there's anything that, that we receive the most in our context isn't maybe so much physical suffering or attack for being Christians. It's insult. It's language. It's words. Typically, even if someone knows that you're a Christian. Now, I know we live in the South. There's a church on every corner. But man, I still am in a place and that sometimes I've heard even people I know that I don't know where they may be spiritually saved. Man, there's, that's a lot of Jesus in that. Even, even the name Christ evokes things. Jesus evokes that. Words are typically where it goes. The insult, the hurt. The, the, the name of Jesus brings this out. Jesus said that because of his name in Matthew chapter 6 that we would actually receive persecution. That is because of us being connected to him. Not like, as he says in verse 15, if you should suffer not in the consequences like a murderer or a criminal, but in, in, it's interesting. He adds, even as a meddler... Because he probably supposes that most of the people that he's writing to are not those who are doing these criminal activities necessarily, but they're meddling. And you know what those people were. They're somewhat of the equivalent of people who troll today online, In order to stir up dissension. That they see somebody or something in culture that they're like, that's wrong. We need to speak up as Christians. I'm going to send something on Facebook, Twitter, or something else to explode it out and say, this is how it should be. He's like, that's not how we're supposed to act. And yet sometimes we do that and receive some sort of persecution back, which is different in some sense. And we wonder why. And we think, oh, we're suffering for the Lord's sake. But Are we doing that because we're expecting, asking for it, or are we living for Jesus? Are we pursuing Christianity, or are we pursuing Christ in that? Because how much of the suffering comes from us seeking it out, or how much of the suffering is because we're followers of Jesus, because we're identifying with the name of Jesus, which The name of Jesus, you know, Jesus Christ isn't like Jesus and his last name is Christ, okay? And I'm not trying to insult you. I'm I'm really trying to say there's something about his name because of what it represents as Jesus as Savior and what that language means to save and Christ as Messiah. That when we identify ourselves with someone who is saying, I am the appointed Messiah, We're making a statement. We're saying that this first century Jewish man is someone whose name we want to bear. We actually come to church to talk about. We take an old book and wake up in the morning. Now you get to wake up at what? 10 and roll in here about 1045 um, for the 1030 service. Uh, But the fact that We do that. Think about about the irony of that. To sit in here and ask the question, how do we follow a first century Jewish man who said, I am not just any teacher, I am the Christ, the Christ. When you make that statement, you're making a statement that says, I am willing to take on what he takes on. I am willing to go forward in that. And it means that there's going to be suffering had when you identify with Him. And the reaction we should have is not of surprise. It's not like strange. It should be like, if I'm looking at who Jesus is, it is who we are. It is what we're taking up. It actually says in verses 17 and 18, it says, for it is... It is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I need to just draw out the reality. He's brought this up a couple of times in his letter. There is a judgment. There actually is one. And there is accountability for this. Suffering is not unaccounted for. And when God uses it to purify his people, and what he's saying is, is there is a final judgment. And here's what's interesting about how the Bible judges. The Bible isn't just who's good, who's bad. It's the one who actually came and suffered. That is Jesus who actually takes up our flesh and gets into that suffering is also the one who judges. So Jesus not only just judges for, oh, well, you did this, you didn't do this. He takes up into our flesh that so that we know he takes his own, our own medicine. And he does so in a way that we want, should want his judgment. That's why he quotes Proverbs. If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, what this means isn't, gosh, it's hard for us, but it's that the links to which God has gone to save us in his suffering. He has gone all the way. And judgment is something that we should want. I remember I was in Florence, Italy, gosh, backpacking with friends like ages ago, one of those things you just kind of do. And, and had a guy pickpocket me and my friend caught him. This is an interesting dilemma. You don't usually catch the person. And I got to get my stuff and get face to face with this person. And I remember having this kind of, broken kind of conversation in translation with him about it and um, talking to him about what he's really wanting and needing. And at some point this guy says to me, well, God will be my judge. God will be my judge. And I actually looked at him in the moment and said, I, I don't know if you understand what you're saying at the, in this moment. Because what you're saying is I understand what you need but yeah, God is judge. And there will be things we are all going to be held accountable for. What do we want it to be accountable for? Who holds the account when we are? Is it the one who saves us or ourselves? And here's what one of the most profound theologians of talking about suffering, Miroslav Volf. You've read his things on suffering and judgment. Someone who went through horrible atrocities in Croatia. He's a Croatian Christian theologian. He said, we long for God's judgment. He said he saw things that none of us wish we would ever see. Why did he long for God's judgment so much? One, it took judgment out of his hands so that he could actually forgive in a way that he couldn't before, because he knew there was a judge that was wiser and bigger than him. And two, he said that just, he knew justice would be carried out in a way that no one would be lost that none of the none of the, the chaff would be there. It wouldn't be this unwise, just angry, just thing. It was given to a wise judge that would hold those accountable for who are in him. We shouldn't look down on God's wrath and justice and judgment because it is made for us to be new in this whole world. All the things we long for, all the atrocities that we've gone through in our own city, We should long for God's judgment and justice, his wrath even, because what it does is not just him being mad about everything and stomping his feet. It's his great care and wisdom to make all things new. That's what it takes. That's the fiery ordeal. And that's actually what's happening. This is how we should think about our reactions to suffering, but it drives us to rejoice in it because of who we're connected to. Verse 13 says this, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed. There's a word again, twice in the same verse, when his glory is revealed, participating. See, here's the, here's the difference in suffering in Christianity and why I, I've said it a couple times from up here, but why... I continue to go back to Christianity even when I hit my own doubts and live in them sometimes, even as your pastor, and you should too. Why Christianity continues to be what it is in my life is because of suffering, and here's why. Because if I participate in suffering by myself, I would never get there. Jesus unites us to himself in our suffering. In fact, he brings us into his suffering. The gospels are full of suffering in connection to it. And this is why Jesus says, because of me and in me all the time. That when we're suffering, it's not this random thing happening in our life, but God wants us to go back and say we're participating. That means we're unified. We're in someone else linked so closely that he can't tear it apart. There's a catechism that we read from time to co- time. to time. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, those catechisms, by the way, when we read them often, especially when we come to the table, are actually used for children. And they're used for children to learn, like, what does it mean for me to love God? And, you know, the number one Question question number one in the Heidelberg Catechism asks this, what is your comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about those words. That I am not my own, but belong in body and soul, and in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know when we actually baptize children? We're going to do some of these next week even. When we baptize children, one of the questions that we actually ask in baptism is when we say to the parents, and I turn here and I ask it off, and I say, do you unreservedly dedicate your child to God? Do you know what that question means? That means we're acknowledging that as parents, we actually aren't in control. On a Father's Day like this one, where again, happy Father's Day for many of us. And many of us, it may be a hard one. I don't know. But regardless of where you are with that relationship, what it really, what we're saying is that there's a Father whose hands are very different than ours. Regardless if you have your own children or not in this room, we all have a Father. It means that we unreservedly dedicate our child to God, that we know that God is taking care of that child. And that is a scary thing. That's the thing that, that Chad Scruggs, friend and pastor in the city, has come back to over and over when I've heard him talk about it. At the loss of his own daughter. What has comforted him in life and in death is that his child is held by someone greater than his own hands. What causes someone to rejoice in the midst of such tragedy? It's because of what we participate in. It's in what name we're connected to. Let's go back to that. It even says in verse 14, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and God rests on you. You you see that, See what Peter just did? If you're insulted, words of cursing, you are blessed. And usually we connect blessed with something being happy, something being charmed. There's a great book by a guy named Andy Crouch called The Life We're Looking For. Fantastic. There's a whole chapter in there about the difference between blessed and charmed. And how often we in our culture think of being blessed as charmed. And it's actually a word that comes from our idea of magic. (laughs) Our idea of not, and he's not like putting down like Harry Potter. He's just saying, we all want like our life to work beautifully. That's what it means. A charmed life. But a blessed life is different than a charmed life. A charmed life is one that doesn't connect it. We may connect it to being a Christian, but that's not what Jesus calls us for. And in fact, Jesus doesn't live a charmed life. If we read any of the Gospels, do you know how the church grows? Do you know the seeds that make the church actually grow up have nothing to do with being charmed? The success is not from us having great things happen. The deepest roots of a church growing, marked all through the Bible, the New Testament, are the roots in suffering and persecution. Now, I'm not saying that we need to just go through, but I'm saying, hey, you know, you know as well as I do, when you're in a connect group, and there's some really hard stuff going on, what happens? That connect group starts getting together. That community group, that, that small group that you're in, the relationships begin to tighten and grow. You begin to be surrounded. These begin to be people that you're like, It's and what's it through? The seeds of suffering. And how in the world could God use the suffering for that? Because God can use any sin and suffering Sinlessly. To make that product of you being blessed. That means you be receiving the gifts of God's glory. And I love you says, for the spirit of glory, the word glory is a word for heaviness. It's a word kabod in, in Hebrew. It sounds like it's like a rain cloud that looks like it's about to just bust open. It's heavy. Don't you want to feel weight and not just blown around when you're suffering? A spirit of glory and of God that rests on you in that. And Peter says that's where true blessing comes from. And this is where he ends. He ends with this. Verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Do you know the name Christian was actually a slur? It was actually not a good name. It was used by the Roman government to say, oh, they're those Christians. They never even called themselves that. In fact, Peter's drawing it out of the Roman slur language, almost like a curse word, to say, praise God when you're cursed in this way by them. And you know, the word Christian, all it means is Christ follower. (laughs) But the question is, are we a Christ follower? Many of us may think we are, but are we followers of Christianity or of Christ? That's a huge difference. Are we following a type of Christianity that we've been used to? Are we actually following Jesus and who he is and what he calls us to be and what that really means? See, if we're following Christianity Our joy in suffering will go with whatever we've tried to learn. But if we're connected to the person of Jesus, following Christ, being a Christ follower, that's a whole nother set of joy in relationship to a someone, not something. And that's why he can finish this by saying, so then, and it's actually a summary verse of the entire book of Peter, and he says, "So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good." That word "commit" was a banking term. See, they didn't have banks like we did that they could really just trust. Hey, I'm going to take my deposit here. What they would do, especially if they went on a long trip, they would take their valuables next door, and they'd entrust them to a neighbor. Or someone that they knew or cared. And that whole time, though, they had to trust, entrust their value to this person that they gave that to. And so Peter is is drawing this out for us to say, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves, give our deposit, give our value to whom? their faithful creator. And why in the world would he choose to say creator instead of Lord or God or something that we would typically think of? Because God is the one who has not just taken those. He's made all those things. He's the creator of all things. He doesn't just hold strength. He's given value to all those things. He is the creator of all. One we have. So when we come to this table, we're actually proclaiming Christ's suffering. We're, We're talking about body and blood. We're talking about a participation in a suffering in one of the most excruciating, cruel deaths in history. Something where when Jesus was on the cross, as we think about as we began with the Holocaust in such a horrible place. Everything bad happening in a concentration camp, at this table we're proclaiming and actually participating in where every horrible, sinful deed in you and me, not just at one time, but of all time, was put on Jesus himself at the cross so that when jesus actually says my god my god why have you forsaken me the most innocent of men the only one innocent said god what are you doing you're turning, you're abandoning you're you're leaving me and why he was being crushed in that moment so that when we come to this table and proclaim his death until he comes again we're actually saying we're a christ follower We're using a slang word that they would say, wait, you call yourself a Christian? Why would you do that? Because we rejoice in the fact that this table calls us daughters and sons. It brings us to himself. And guess what? One day, suffering will end. If God can take it up in this way, suffering will not always be. And that's why we say we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Because one day, suffering has already met its match and it knows its expiration date. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.